Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 to 24. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said this to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, Do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became very angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be with you again this morning. Um, It's Thanksgiving morning. It's almost like a, how do you say, a countercultural kind of thing that's as we face the world around us, to say no to despair and no to, yeah, disappointments and give thanks. Yeah. So I'm glad to be able to continue in our series this morning on the um, hospitality and the uh, generosity of our Lord Jesus. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. By now, I'm sure you've noticed how many of uh, Jesus' teaching moments are birthed around shared meals. Notice that? Today we find him sharing a meal in the company of a prominent Pharisee and his guests. Presumably, um, the other well-respected people of the town. Now, what's important, I think, for us to notice is that Jesus is not uh, no respecter of persons. He's as comfortable with sitting with Pharisees as he is with tax collectors. 
And if you remember uh, the uh, message from a few weeks ago with the tax uh, regarding tax collectors, that when you sit with someone at, and eat with them, you uh, in the uh, Middle East culture, it means that you accept them. Though Jesus found himself often at odds with the Pharisaic society, it's, it's clear that the animosity that emerged uh, in that relationship didn't originate with Jesus. Even here, knowing how this group of people felt about him, Jesus was willing to spend time um, intent on helping them see that God's grace is as much for them as for any other person. That God's grace is as much for them as with anybody else. And during his meal with this group of Pharisees, Jesus noticed a familiar behavior. Right? When he noticed how they chose places of honor, he said to them, when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place. Witnessing them vying for places of importance, Jesus, ever the teacher, addressed their need for recognition, tell them a parable of the great banquet. This is the context in which this story arises. And in the story of the banquet, the people that finally end up celebrating in, in the celebration were the least and the last who should be there. None of those folks who ended up at the celebration deserve to be there. Right? All the people that end up in the banquet were not the, you know, invited guests, originally invited guests. They were not deserved to be there. And the parable, as I see it, addresses two common struggles in human relationships. The one, the need to be recognized. The, the second uh, issue is that our need to be rewarded. So along, so along with when, you invited, uh, when you're invited, go and sit at the lowest place, he adds these uh, words. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because what? They cannot repay you. They cannot repay you. Now, this must have been difficult for those early Pharisees because not so much unlike us, their values are largely formed by a world that measures us by what, with, uh, by what we can produce, by the circle of influence we travel in, the homes we have, the fatness of our bank accounts. And it's difficult for us not to compare and to compete with others. Much of our relationships, even with our families, is often transactional. I do something for you, you do something for me. Right? So it's not surprising that even in our relationship with, at the, in the spiritual world or with the spiritual life, we adopt this transactional approach. As such, it's easy to see how this value has also made its way into our spiritual and religious practices. That somehow, through our believing and through our behaving, even through our worship, that God, uh, or God, <laughs> is indebted to, for to forgive us and to love us. And this kind of thinking makes us feel that we have some control over the uncontrollable. 
We have some control over the uncontrollable. That we can somehow get our way with God through our pious acts. And if you don't believe me, just do some research on prosperity gospel and the prosperity preachers. Um, yeah, it's amazing. They, they actually say that God owes you something if you give him something. Right? Or stand outside a Buddhist temple during Chinese New Year. <laughs> it's so many people go there to offer their gifts and to pay their respects. Why? So that they may have a prosperous New Year. So I call this the theology of reciprocity. The theology of reciprocity. I do something for God, so God has to do something for me. And it's with this kind of thinking that Satan makes this accusation. He says in Job 1 verse 9, he says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Or another translation, for no reason at all? In other words, Satan accuses that Job only venerates God because of what God could do for him. And on the flip side, that accusation is that God is good to Job, so Job was good to God, right? And seeing the world and relationships from a reciprocity framework makes it difficult to grasp, difficult to grasp that God could love us for no reason at all. That God could love us for no reason at all. Now Jesus understands this propensity even for folks who believe in Yahweh, right? To fall victim to the theology of reciprocity. So instead of dealing directly with their ambitious attitudes, he tells a parable. And that parable must have been, um, at worst, um, enraging for this polite audience, and at best, bewildering. Because it displays, on the one hand, the generosity of God, and on the other hand, the shallowness of human relationships. And in this parable, the least worthy of society, the poor, the homeless, the disabled, occupied the central place in the end who will enjoy the generosity of the master. And the point of the parable is that no one had a right to be at the party, yet all were invited. In fact, the very reason these people were at that party, at that celebration, was because they did not deserve to be there. They were just off the streets. Nobodies. Go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. Now, I don't think we fully appreciate the plight of these people, the plight of the poor in particular. At least I didn't, until a, an experience with a woman in El Salvador helped me shed some light of the issues, at least for that poor in that country, what they had to live through and what they had to live with. Canadian Baptist Ministry had partnered with a local organization to bring water to folks living in a small village in this part of the country. Elena, the woman's name, and her family had participated in this project. And so we were invited 
to her, I hesitate to call it a home, but a, her dwelling. And uh, she welcomes us with, with the biggest smile you could ever see. And he, she took us to the back of her home where there was a water tap over a basin. And she turns it on. Water's flowing out. And she explains to us that she'd been made to feel like she was worthless, a nobody. But now she's thankful that somebody cared. And then she said, people tell me that I'm poor. But I'm not. I'm rich. Believe me, she, she's no... She's far from being rich. I'm rich, she says, because now I know that God cares for me. God cares for me. Did you catch that? I felt worthless, a nobody. People tell me that I'm poor. As if her economic situation was her fault. And I can tell you, it's not. Nobody plans to be poor. Nobody makes a career to be poor or sick or needy. Complex political, sociological, economic forces at work has put her in her current situation. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't stupid. She was poor, made to feel worthless and nobody. And it's not just in places like El Salvador that poor the poor, the disabled, the folks living at the edge of society are made to feel worthless. Canadian society is no better. And as long as we continue to measure one another in terms of what we can produce, what we own, right? The company we surround ourselves with, we will continue to devalue those who are not able to compete in the same way. And perhaps like Elena, made to feel worthless. But Jesus erases any semblance of this kind of thinking in this parable. We get an insight on God's compassion on the least able by giving them the place of honor where society have excluded them. By giving them the place of honor where society has excluded them. God is not wearing rose-colored glasses here. He sees them as they are, the poor, the sick, the homeless, the marginalized of society. But he does not treat them as such. He generously offers them a place at the banquet because, precisely because he understands they are unable to earn it. He offers you and I a place at the table because you and I are unable to earn it. That is the fact of the gospel and the work of Christ. Through this table, parable, he explains to their Pharisee counterpart that in God's kingdom, there is no need to compete for a place of prominence. No, even the least and the last and the lost is given a place of honor. Unmerited, yes. But honor is the same. Danish writer uh, 
Isaac Dennison uh, tried to capture the audacity of this gesture in her work entitled Babette's Feast. If some of, maybe you've seen the movie or read the story. Some of you may have. The story centers around a community of people for religious reasons separated themselves from the big bad world. They were good people, striving to live austere lives, and in doing so, over time, their lives become as dull and as inviting as the landscape that they occupied. And into this community um, comes Babette, a French chef escaping the horrors of the Napoleonic Wars. And for 14 years, she's a servant to, um, to the two sisters who had inherited the leadership of this small community from their father, the group's founding pastor. After 14 years, one day, Babette um, receives a money order and a letter informing her that she had won the lottery. <laughs> a sizable fortune of 10,000 francs. Her good fortune came just at the time when the sisters were going to celebrate the community's 100 years anniversary. So Babette begs the sisters to allow her to make and pay for the meal for this special celebration. Reluctantly, they gave Babette their permission and what follows was that this community of Lutherans were treated to a meal of a lifetime. The evening was simply the best time these people have had for a long, long time. They never had such good wine, such delicious meals. Broken relationships were restored. Songs were sung, stories were told, loved, renewed. In the last scene of the story, we find Babette among the dirty dishes and pots of a messy kitchen, where the leaders of this congregation, in the process of thanking Babette for this wonderful evening, discovers a shocking secret. The shocking news was that Babette had blown her entire fortune on this one meal. Grace came to this community in the form of a feast, Babette's feast, a meal of a lifetime lavished on those who had in no way, had no way to earn it, and who barely possessed the faculties to receive it. Grace came to this strict Norwegian community as it always comes, free of charge, no strings attached, on the house. God's grace is like that. Among the dirty dishes, broken crates, greasy spot, pots of our lives, God prepares an extravagant meal of love, forgiveness, and mercy and acceptance. It's free of charge, lavishly and generously given to people who have no way to pay for it. And it's given just for the joy of us, wanting nothing in return. But it's hard for us, isn't it? Who are so familiar with the doctrine of reciprocity to get our heads around this concept of grace. So it makes sense that the master of our, of our parable instructs his servants in verse 23 
he says to them, make them come. <laughs> make them come. And he, that's the NIV translation. The New Living Translation says, to urge them to come. And the King James says, to compel them to come. Why? I thought to myself as I read this passage. Why did they have to be compelled to come to a free meal? Perhaps these folks have been scammed enough to know that nothing in life is free. Perhaps they, have been, they are ashamed. Right? Look at me. I'm dressed in rags and I haven't got, taken a bath for days and I stink. Whatever the reasons, they could not believe that someone would invite the lights of them to a banquet for no reason at all. Here's the thing. The poor do not believe they have anything to offer. The emotionally uh, wounded have been so traumatized that they find it difficult to trust. The disenfranchised do not feel they have a voice. So downtrodden were these folks that the master had to compel, forcefully drag them out of their hovels and their tent cities to come to the banquet. Because grace is not satisfied to leave anybody on the side of the road, hidden behind hedges from a world that so desperately needs these folks to teach it about dignity and humility and compassion and forgiveness and love. Philip Yancey made this comment about grace. He says, grace breaks all the rules. <laughs> Most people live with a sense that, of life that's akin to karma. Do good, get rewarded. Do bad, get punished. Along comes this incredible good news that God uh, loves us not because of who we are, but because of who God is. No matter what we've done, forgiveness is there for the asking. We, ex we expect the worst. We expect the worst. But we get the best. We get the best. So how might we respond to this parable? What's some things we can do to, to respond to such an audacious gesture of grace? Well, there's probably many things, but let me give you two things, two suggestions. First, since this is Thanksgiving Sunday, be grateful. Be grateful. If you've ever been saved from certain disaster, you know that one of the initial responses besides surprise, right, and relief is gratitude. Gratitude. Christine Paul makes this observation. It says, if we really understand our lives as redeemed by costly grace, then our primary response can only be gratitude. It's at the corner of Christ, the Christian life. Grace evokes gratitude like, like the voice of an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. If the essence of God is grace, Barth explained, then the essence of human beings as God's people is our gratitude or thanks. 
She goes on to say, the word gratitude comes from the Latin gratia, which means grace or graciousness. Similarly in Greek, grace, charis, and thankfulness, thanksgiving or gratitude, Eucharist share the same root. If grace and gratitude are central and belong together, why then are they not more prominent in how we live? How often do we imagine or experience every beat of our heart pumping out our thankfulness? Did you know, I was doing some research, I don't know why I was doing this research on, on the probability of you being born. You know what the probability of you being born is? One in 400 trillion. One in 400 trillion. Friends, every person here has won the cosmic lottery. <laughs> Seriously. One in 400 trillion. It's even worse than whatever. What, what is the uh, 649, right? But unfortunately, there are many issues living in a sin-permeated world that undermines our ability to be thankful. Illness, hard, economic hardships, betrayal, failed relationships, death, all serve to dampen our, and even stifle our ability to be grateful. Sometimes we just have to, to stubbornly choose to go against the natural reaction to disappointments of life. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it's possible not to give into bitterness and hatred and self-pity. Martin Rinkard, 17th century pastor, knows something about this exhortation to give thanks. In 1636, in the midst of the darkest days of the Thirty Year War, Martin Rinkard is said to have buried 5,000 of his parishioners in that one year, an average of 15 funerals a day. Pastors, did you get that? <laughs> 15 funerals a day. His parish was ravaged by war, death, and economic disaster. But in the heart of that darkness, with the cries of fear outside his window, he sat down and wrote this table grace for his children. We sang it this morning. Let's read it together. How about that? Now, thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has led us on our way with countless Here is a man who, despite his circumstances, chose to give thanks rather than give into anger and despair. No one would have blamed him if he did. Be grateful. You won the cosmic lottery. The second thing I'd suggest is to be kind. 
So Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. For they, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. Amy Peterson in her book, Where Goodness Still Grows, makes a reference to a Catholic theologian and philosopher named Janet Soskis, who in her examination of the entomology of the word kindness writes, the words kind and kin were the same. When the psalmist declared, you are kind, Lord, so good and merciful, you protect ordinary people, when I was helpless, you saved me and treated me so kindly that I don't need to worry anymore. To say that Christ is our kind Lord is not to say that Christ is tender and gentle, although that might be implied, but to say that he, but to say that he is kin, our kind. To be kind meant to be kin. Furthermore, to say that our kind Lord has, has erased the differences between people of different social economic status. Because in Jesus, we belong to the same kind. Landowners, nobles, and peasants. In Christ's kindness or kin-like, all divisions of privilege are erased. If Soskis is right, then practicing kindness requires, at minimum, a willingness to see the image of God in and to find a point of honest connection with every person, even and especially those I dislike. St. Paul puts it this way, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, one another as God in Christ forgave you. So friends, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, let us raise our fists against despair and disappointments. And remember, despite the many challenges and trouble you are currently facing, regardless of the failing health, the many losses you may have experienced or are experiencing, God is not unaware God is not unaware, nor is he indifferent to your suffering. No, he's fully engaged in your life, no matter what your situation looks like, to redeem and to rescue and to restore you in all of humanity to the good life that he's always intended for us. And one day, our hope will become reality. Read this with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Amen? Amen. Amen. Because of that reality, be kind to one another. Especially towards those who are without and lacking. For we are kin after all. Especially those who are in Christ. So in Christ, there's no need to compete for recognition or rewards. For all of us are included, invited, loved, for no reason at all. 
and it's freely bestowed, no strings attached on the house. What say you? Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this. Wow, this parable. And the amazing grace that we who did not deserve all that you have for us have been invited to the greatest banquet in the history of the universe. We thank you, O oh God. Help us to live the life you always intended us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.